This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. If you're new here and I haven't met you, my name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here. And let me just extend a welcome, say thanks for being with us. It's really our joy to have you with us. And we are uh, in a study right now through a book of the Old Testament called Nehemiah. So if you have a Bible, we're going to actually cover two chapters today. It won't be a longer sermon. I'll just cover chapter 7 very quickly. Uh, We've been working our way at about a chapter a week. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one under the seat in front of you. And if you can take one and turn to page 228, you'll be able to track with us. So let me pray. And since we've got to cover a lot of ground, we'll jump right in. God, thank you for your word. And we pause today before your word. We ask you to speak to us, address us from your word. Lord, give us right now listening ears and soft hearts to respond to you. Lord, I pray most of all you would show us Christ in this text and that your joy would strengthen us as we uh, consider what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we just finished chapter 6, and in chapter 6, they completed the project. Nehemiah led the people. They built the wall which surrounded the city of Jerusalem so that they could be a fortified city. They were building the wall so they'd be protected, and uh, they did this in 52 days, but it wasn't easy. They had a lot of opposition. They had an assault of false rumors being spread uh, about uh, Nehemiah that caused him to be uh, temptation to make him fearful and quit. They had false prophecies going out or going to him, actually, tempting him to quit. But he persevered and uh, completed God's work, even though he was tempted by fear. So the last two weeks, we've talked about fear and how fear operates in our lives. And so if you weren't here and that's something you wrestle with, all of us do. At points, you could go back online and listen to those messages from chapter 6 and uh, find out about how we communicated about fear. But today, we're going to move on. They've completed the project. Uh, his, in, the, Nehemiah's enemies, the people's enemies, have seen God at work. It says that they were uh, ultimately amazed by the work of God. They got, saw God's power. They were afraid, and they became, they fell greatly at their own esteem. So God's enemies are uh, afraid of God's people who he is at work uh, within. And, uh, and today we want to see what happens next in chapters 7 and 8. What Nehemiah is doing in this section of chapter 7 in particular is he is sort of finalizing the work and he is making God's people secure so that they can dwell in the city and they can be a light to the world as God's people living together. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 7. And uh, then I'll comment on the rest of the chapter. Then we'll go to chapter 8. So here we go. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Listen to the word of God. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. So this is a picture of Nehemiah 
a faithful servant of God. He, he gets past the hard work of building the walls, but he doesn't quit until he's finished. And he finishes by securing God's people. This first section is the people secured. Then we're going to see the people renewed. But first, the people secured. What, what he does is he puts the doors in, makes sure that they are in with a bar. He sets um, guards at the door with instructions of when the gates to the city are to be opened and closed. These are all security measures. Um, and then he also delegates responsibility to these two guys, Hanani and Hananiah, and he delegates responsibility for overseeing Jerusalem. So Nehemiah is a faithful leader. The city is largely empty, but he has now built the wall and, and set a guard in place so that now people can begin to build homes and restore homes and move back into the city. The next thing he does in verses 5 through 73, yes, it's a chapter with 73 verses, is he gives us a census of people. Now, when we were in chapter 3, I worked my way through a lot of hard-to-pronounce names and read every name in the chapter. There's a place to do that. Uh, It's valuable to go over and consider who are these people and what did they do. But today, I'm just going to give you the highlights. I'm not going to read this section. I'm just going to give you the highlights of what's going on in this section. It is a census of all the people who returned to Jerusalem 90 years before the city walls were built. So this is 90 years prior. These folks had all come, and he lists them sort of in groups. So in verses 8 to 38, it's citizens. Uh, Verses 39 to 42, it's a list of priests. Verse 43 through 45, it's a list of Levites who serve the temple. Verses 46 through 65, it's a list of temple servants. And then after that, he gives kind of a countdown of how many people are in the assembly, uh, how many animals, how much they gave, how much the people gave, some things like that. And he wraps up the chapter there. And it can often be curious to us, why does God include in his holy word lists of people like this? And in this case, in particular, I think it would have obviously mattered to the people at the time. There's a couple of reasons. One is so that people could know who are to be perhaps the new priests as they've rebuilt the temple and now are rebuilding the city, who are to be the new Levites, because you had to be in a certain family to be able to, um, to serve in that way. So you could see a family lineage. So that would be valuable. But I think there's another reason, and that's this. That in these list of families, households, in this kind of family tree, we see that God is faithful to his people. God said that he would build a city uh, where his people would dwell to be a light to the nations. And they went into exile because of their sin. But now he's restored them. And he's not just generally faithful to God's people. He's faithful to specific people whose names are listed here. It's powerful that their names are listed, who they are. These are real people that God was faithful to restore and to work through in his city. He is specifically faithful to his covenant, to his people overall, but to individuals as well. And that means he's faithful to you individually. He's faithful to me as well. So, so he completes the wall. He sets up the leader. He sets leaders. He sets up security. And then we see the great purpose for the reason the wall was built. Because we were thinking as we've studied six chapters that God was about, you know, we commented that there was more than a construction project going on, but we really hadn't gotten to see what was God after. And we see what he's after in chapter eight. So let me read verses eight through 12, and then we'll walk through it. Verses, uh, verse one, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. 
And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they said, what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aenea, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his right, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This section describes a powerful work of God among his people. What he is doing here is that he is renewing his people. We, we see the building of the wall. And it was such a great accomplishment that required everyone to come together and everyone to make sacrifices and everyone to labor. But we see that that great accomplishment was just a stepping stone to a greater work. What God ultimately wanted to do was meet with his people and to renew their relationship with him. And in this section of scripture, what we see is that though we see Ezra mentioned and Ezra serving Nehemiah's mentioned, these Levites are mentioned. But what we really see happening in this chapter is a shift with God coming to the front of the stage as the primary actor. He's been acting all along. They said our hand, the hand of God was with us. That's how we built the wall. People could see God is with them. But now it's as if Nehemiah who's hardly mentioned the rest of the book, by the way, I think three or four times after this chapter is even mentioned. Uh, Ezra, the scribe, he's reading, but it's really God who is in the front, front and center, 
touching his people through his word. He revives and renews them through his word. All revival in the Bible and in church history occurs through the Bible being read, studied, preached, taught, proclaimed so that it touches people's hearts and changes them. And that's exactly what happens here. The people all gather in the city, verse 1 tells us, as one man. Uh, That means as one person, they are united together. And they come into the square before the water gate. There's different estimates of how many people are there, but it's probably in the tens of thousands. And, And I don't know if you noticed this verse, but I find it absolutely phenomenal. In verse 1, and they told Ezra, Ezra didn't tell them, he's the priest, they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses uh, that the Lord had commanded Israel. They're saying, bring God's word to us, bring the word. Now, Ezra had returned 13 years prior to this, and Ezra was, uh, he had restored worship in the temple. But we don't get any sense that there had ever been a moment like this in his ministry when all the people are gathered in unity and a cry goes out, bring the word. They're demanding that he bring them the scripture. I just sort of imagine it like a large, you know, outdoor music festival concert. And everybody's got their lighters or their cell phones, whatever, sort of waving up in the air. And they're just chanting, bring the word, bring the word, just chanting for Ezra to bring it, which I would really like that to happen on Sundays. Every time I walk up here, if there could just in this mighty hall among the people of God, may we all stand and chant, bring the word. So if you'd like to stand up and get that going next week, I'm sure someone will stand and support you. But at any rate, they're, they're, they're telling Ezra, we want the word of God. And something has happened phenomenal here. God's not mentioned. It doesn't say, and God changed their hearts. But if you've just been tracking as we read the book, God changed their hearts. I mean, there's just a few chapters before this. What's going on? The rich people are oppressing the poor. The powerful people are taking advantage of women and children while their husbands and fathers are at work on the wall. While all that's going on, they are taking advantage of their neighbor. The most vulnerable, the poor, the women and the children are being taken advantage of. Kids are even being sold into slavery to pay debts uh, from the poor. So just a few chapters before, the powerful are harming the weak. It doesn't seem at all like revival. It doesn't seem like any godliness. It seems like, uh, it seems like those in power taking advantage of those who are vulnerable. And they repented, obviously, of that. But now a few chapters later, we've got people shouting for the word of God. And it's not just a slight devotional thought. It's not a moment with Ezra. Look what he says. He says, verse two, Ezra, the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. So this is a day that starts a day of uh, the seventh month was a day where there were festivals, day of atonement, later the day of feast of booths. Um, but this was a day of rest that, then, that they're all called together on. And it's the men, the women, and those who could understand. So children old enough to understand. Nursing infants aren't there. Probably little toddlers aren't there. But if someone was old enough, so maybe elementary age, I don't know the age, but old enough to understand, they were there. And it says, verse 3, he read from it facing the square before the water gate. From early morning until midday, 
in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. So there are kids with them, and he is reading from like sun up until midday, like five hours maybe, six hours. He is reading God's word to the people. And what is their response? Verse 3, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They are listening. Why are they listening? Because as I said, this isn't a motivational speech from Ezra. This isn't a few pointers on how to have a better life. This is God addressing his people through the word. And so they want to hear from God. They are attentive. The the details that we get, which are unnecessary in terms of understanding what happened, but God gives us certain details to just highlight his word and their response to the word. So, for instance, he says that verse 4, Ezra is on a wooden platform. The Hebrew word can be translated tower as well. So he's on a platform tower. He's got these other people with him. He's elevated He's elevated up to read the word. It says in verse 5, and he opened the book in the sight of all, for he was above the people. He was elevated so they could see him. And as he opened it, all the people stood. So it's probably not a book like this, like a Bible would be. It's, It's a scroll. But he's up high, he's elevated, and we get these details that all the people can see the book. They can see the scroll, and they can see him open it up. And as he opens it up, there is this evidently sort of a hush and a response of reverence. They all stand up. It doesn't say that Ezra told everybody to stand for the reading of the word. That would have been fine. It just says as he opened it, they all stood. So they're chanting. And now that they got it, they're standing up. Attentive is the word in the text. Attentive ears. Listening to God's word. Something is happening here that's out of the ordinary. It's different. It's unusual. These aren't just words. These are God's word. God, the God-breathed word. He's reading from the first five books of the Bible. That's what the law is called, the law, the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So he's reading from those books to the people for five or six hours. When we come together, and this this whole passage is about the gathered people of God. Sometimes we talk about being scattered. We did a whole series on that this summer where I never even referred to the gathered people of God as we talked about the gospel for everyday life. But today I want to talk about when we gather. So there's times to focus on our gathering. There's times to focus on our scattering. Uh, What is it like to walk with God in the world? Today we're talking about what is it like to walk with God gathered with his people in the local, for us, the local church. And when we gather and we hear God's word, the same is true. Something unusual is happening. I'm reminded of that. I fear the Lord in doing what I'm doing right now, but I'm reminded when I stand here with a Bible in this pulpit, I'm reminded that this is not just, I'm, I'm not here to share some opinions or to just sort of give Uh, my personal preference. I'm here to read the words of God and be as faithful as possible to explain what they mean and how we can apply them today. And that's a fearful task in many ways. But when I stand here, I'm aware that this is God's word. That's why we'll often, when we read God's word, we'll often mark it off that way. Often I'll say something like, listen now, when I start to read, listen now to the word of God. 
or let's listen to God's holy word, or this is God's word to us today, or something like that, where I'm just sort of denoting what you're about to hear. Everything is different right now. We're about to hear from God. And I'm reminded, even when I stand here, that this, that this is, I mean, Ezra sort of had his own furniture. He's on a platform or he's on a tower or he's something. Some historic churches, their pulpits are, you walk kind of stairs up and they kind of look like a tower. They're elevated a lot of times. And I don't know if that's from this passage, but what's happening there is they're saying, this isn't a lectern or this isn't, uh, there's, when someone's teaching God's word from that locale, something unique is happening. So we use this piece of furniture for announcements and testimonies and all kinds of stuff. There's nothing holy about this wooden structure. But it does remind me when I preach that in this pulpit is God's word. And there's something that should be holy and unique happening here. And I better, and all the preachers who preach here, we better take that very seriously because this is God's word. So as he does it, all the people rise and listen. They stand. Look at their other postures in the passage. Verse 6, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen. So there are, he, he is blessing God. God, maybe he's thanking God for the word. And they're all agreeing. And then it says, they lifting up their hands. So he reads the word and the people put their hands up to hear. Now, what is that about? What is going on? Well, lifted hands can communicate a few things. They certainly communicate need. Like a young, we just had young children up here, right? Like a young child running to its mother or father. Hold me. Just a a need. Open hands, uplifted hands are a sign of need. They can also be a sign of surrender. I give up. I surrender. A, A sign of honor. A sign of respect. Uh, It's a sign to say, God, you are speaking and we are in a recipient position. You are the king. We are your subjects. You are the father. We are your children. Uh, And we are receiving and listening and honoring you. Look how they honor him. It says they lifted their hands and then they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. God is speaking and they are bowing reverently. Maybe lying down with their faces down, listening to the word of God. This is, there is a holy thing that is happening here. And and I find this tremendously convicting because I want to have this attitude. We don't have to necessarily mimic the posture. It doesn't mean that every time we read the Bible that you should kneel or raise your hands or verbally say, uh, amen, amen, though some of that would certainly be great, but it's not just mimicking the posture. I want to have the attitude of heart, which whether my hands are up or I'm on the ground or whatever, that my heart is, is communicating that. And maybe it's appropriate that we do stand in honor of him as the word is read at times, or that we do raise our hands. I see people do that here. Sometimes there'll be a scripture reading while we're singing and somebody will have their hands up. Well, that's got biblical precedent. That's got biblical precedent, but it's the heart that we're after responding to the Lord. And I find this, I don't know about you, but I find this convicting. I find this challenging. Because I have to say that when I hear God's word read or declared, preached, uh, this is not always my attitude. I can often have a, a more casual, flippant attitude, aware of the human speaker. Well, let's see what Is this going to be helpful? Is this any good? Just kind of evaluative. Rather than saying, I'm here for the word of God to evaluate me. 
You know, this really came home to me this week, and what I'm about to say is a correction to me, but if it rubs off and it's a correction to you too, receive it. We have at various times had a call to worship here at the beginning of our gathering, which is a reading of Scripture before we start singing. And the idea is before we say, pray, sing, or do anything, let's hear from God first, and then we are responding to God. So we read a scripture and then we start singing or whatever uh, to respond to God. And we, we have gotten real. We did that for a while. We did some study on this a number of years ago as elders. We did that for a while. And then we just sort of got lax. And I remember just thinking, you know what? Telling Tim. Um, so the conviction part for me is I was just kind of lax and saying, well, maybe that's not so important. And a lot of people aren't even here when they start the service. So we start the 9 a.m. service. A lot of folks aren't in the room. So let's not read the Bible and call people to worship that aren't here. Let's, uh, let's read something later in the service maybe, which you can do both. We did both today. But let's, let's do a, you know, a reading, a responsive reading, or a declarative reading or something later in the service. But let's not do it at the beginning because people you know, aren't here. And I, for me, I just felt like I was just minimizing the importance of hearing from God before we start singing. Uh, and for you as well, uh, for you as well, the challenge to say, when the service starts at 11, I don't want to be out in the hallway. I want to be hearing God's word. Or if you come to the 9 a.m., I want to be hearing God's word. I want to be in my spot, ready to go. My face may not be on the ground. My hands may not be up in the air at the very beginning at 9 or 11. But I am coming, standing at attention with an attentive ear, hungry for the word of God, which is declared as we begin our service. So I told Tim this week, we're back. And I read Psalm 66 to start the service today. We want to be back listening to God's word in a call to worship. A hunger to hear God. There is a reverence and a hunger in this passage that I want to characterize my own life in my private reading, in our gathered hearing of the word uh, as well. Now notice what the Levites are doing. The Levites are, in verses 7, it says, they are helping the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. What is going on there? Well, Nehemiah is up in his tower platform, platform tower, whatever it is. He's elevated. He's got the scroll. Everybody can see. Everybody can hear. Everybody is, you know, being responsive. But what is happening They're responding to the Levites are spread all throughout the congregation, thousands of people, and they are there in the middle of them, kind of giving a teaching after he reads a section, I suppose. So why is that happening? Uh, Well, the reason that's happening is because many of the people would not have been able to understand what is being read because uh, the law was written in Hebrew. And yet the people at this time had adopted the language of the conquering nation, Uh, that they were under, which was Aramaic. So they spoke Aramaic. uh, And in fact, this was 400 plus, 445 years-ish before Christ. So probably Jesus spoke Aramaic as well. They probably continued to speak Aramaic. And Jesus in his day probably spoke Aramaic, not King James English. I hate to disappoint anybody, but some of the, I grew up thinking that's what, that was the language of Jesus. I saw it in a movie. He was saying, thou shalt and whatever. But no, he was probably speaking Aramaic. And so they probably had to say, this is what that means. It gave them the sense of it. They could have understood some of it. 
but he probably gave them the sense, this is what it means. And, and it says they, they gave the sense so that the people understood. So probably some of the uh, concepts were foreign. Some of the language was theological. Some of the history behind it might have been. So they probably were saying, this is what that means. And then sort of very briefly helping them understand what God was communicating. So Ezra's reading, they're interpreting and applying. And that's really the goal of teaching or preaching, that the word is read and then someone gives the sense of it so that we can understand and respond and apply to it. So that's happening. And it says again, they understood the reading. There's this emphasis on understanding. Now, what happens when hungry people gather before God to hear his word read and to hear it explained in a way that they can understand what happens? Well, verses 9 through 12 show us what happens. When the people heard the the word of God, they they wept. It says, um, verse uh, 9 says, at the end of verse 9, it says, For all the people wept as they heard the word of the Lord. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So they hear the word, and their immediate response is the people are weeping. Why are they weeping? Well, they're weeping likely because they're hearing things that either they were unfamiliar with, that they had forgotten, but for sure that they were not doing. So they're hearing about the holiness of God, the character of God, the law of God. They're hearing about their own sinfulness, realizing that they have dishonored the Lord, they have displeased the Lord, and now they are broken. They are grieved. They are convicted because they have dishonored the God who has freed them from Egypt and restored them from exile so many years later. The God who has loved them. And, and that, is, that is part of the effect of the word of God. When we hear the word of God with open ears, it penetrates our hearts. That's not just in the Old Testament. That's in the New Testament. Listen to Hebrews 4. Hebrews four twelve says this. For the word of God is living and active. It's not dusty. It's not ancient. It's not irrelevant. It's not dead. It's living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He's saying that the word of God has this living power to enter us like a sword. Like a sword would pierce into a person, God's word pierces into our hearts. And then what does it do? Do No one is hidden from it. It, it. We're all naked and exposed to him. The word of God comes to us and it exposes our heart before God. That's why they're weeping in their, in their, in their soul, their, their naked soul before God. They're exposed and they are convicted. This is what the word of God does. Uh, Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches the good news to the people. And it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said, what must we do? Peter preaches God's word. What happens? Their hearts are pierced. They are cut, two-edged sword. So there is this piercing effect of the word of God. 
When God lovingly and graciously moves in a person's heart through his word, there will be an awareness of God's holiness. This is a beautiful passage because he is showing such mercy and such kindness to reveal himself. And when any of us see the character of God in light of our own selves, there is this, this shaking, this awakening, this, this, this grief that comes over us. And whenever we gather before God's word, we want to be hearing, we want our hearts to be open to see what would he say to us. Now, notice in the passage, they don't stick, they don't stay with conviction because conviction is not an end in itself. Conviction is a means to, to transport us somewhere. You don't receive conviction to just say, okay, well, that's it. I'm convicted. I remember earlier when I was a really young guy, uh, preaching. And sometimes I would preach the first, uh, first church I preached at regularly. And, you know, I would just try to try to bring the word of God. And sometimes people come up to me at the end and say, wow, preacher, you got me today, man, that word today, that stung, you know? And I, I get that. If you've ever said that to me, I don't remember anybody saying that, but if you had, I'm not critiquing you. Uh, and I get that. I've heard messages that it's like, wow, I feel just like that, man, that exposed my heart. Lord, I need you. So to say as part of hearing God's word, I was affected and sobered. That's great. But if the person was saying what some of them I'm afraid were, wow, when I heard God's word, I felt really convicted and realized how bad I am. And now I'm going home realizing how bad I am and I'll be back next week for more. If that's what they meant, that is a failed sermon. Because here they're saying, look, we're not just going to leave you here. They're saying, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is a holy day. Now, most of us would think holy day means you must be weeping. Well, they are. They're saying this is a holy day to the Lord. Verse uh, 9, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. But instead, go your way, eat the fat, drink the wine, give, give to those who don't have any. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved. Verse 10, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What is, what are they saying? Listen, when they read the law, they would have, they would have read passages about the holiness of God and felt convicted for sin for sure. But the law, particularly Leviticus, Exodus would have had many passages that speak about God's, God's way of bringing forgiveness, his sacrificial system. So they would have also read passages about how sacrifices are offered, animal sacrifices to atone for our sins. The seventh month is the month that they celebrate the day of atonement. So yes, they should be aware of their sins. Yes, they should grieve. But you don't just live there. You must also realize God makes atonement for your sins. So repent and come to him and receive forgiveness. And the fruit of that is joy. So they're crumpled in tears. And he says, listen, let the joy of the Lord. He says, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, how many of you heard a children's song when you read that verse? Anybody? Did anybody grow up in Sunday school and you know that song? The joy of the Lord is my strength. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. Does nobody know that song? Do you guys know that song, right? The joy of the Lord is my strength. Did you ever know when you sang that in children's ministry that it's completely sort of ripped out of context, that the context was people weeping over their sins, 
condemned, perhaps, feeling condemned for their sins, aware of the holiness of God. And they have to come and say, you're so convicted of your sin. You're so aware of the holiness of God. You need the joy of the Lord. You need to know something about his grace and mercy and his gospel to bring your heart joy. When I sang that song as a kid, I never felt any conviction for my sin, especially verse three. Ha, 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 ha. You know that verse? I, I mean, and that's a lot of content in that verse, but I, I, I was, I was just thinking, da, 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 da. I wasn't thinking, whoa, this is, this is, this is the message after you're convicted of sin. Then the, the conviction is always to lead us to the gospel. It's always to lead us to say, yes, you have sinned, but there is one who forgives your sins. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus was buried for your sins. Jesus was raised on the third day for your sins. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the father and pours out his spirit with, to live within you to comfort you in your grief for your sin. The Holy Spirit comforts you by putting your eyes back on Jesus, the one who forgave your sins, who resurrected to defeat the power of sin and who gives you power to not live in that sin anymore. That's good news. And so there is joy. I mean, this is an emotional roller coaster of a day. Five to six hours of Bible when they probably hadn't heard that much. They didn't have the Bible at home. So they probably hadn't heard this, I mean, this, this overwhelming guilt and grief. And then them coming along and saying, this is a day to have joy. And so what do they tell them to do? They say in verse 10, go your way, eat fat and drink sweet wine. That's not a bad day. Eat fat and drink wine is what they tell them to go do. And then go home. And there's some people that aren't prepared for today. They don't have fat. They don't have wine. So you provide for them. So he's telling you, you go home and celebrate. It's a a day. This day is holy. I love this language. This day is holy. Do not be grieved. There is a time under the holiness of God to be grieved for a period. For, you know, there's a time. We don't live our whole life that way. There's a time to be grieved. And most of us haven't been grieved enough, perhaps. And so we really don't know the joy of the Lord is our strength because we don't know the grief that leads to the joy. But here, it's a holy day and they're to have a holy joy. So they go their way. And do what they're told. Do what, do what they say. There's a few points here that I think God wants to draw our attention to. Think about this passage. God reveals himself through his word. But he reveals himself through his word to those whose hearts are open to him. These people are hungry. I want to ask you, when the word of God is read as we gathered and taught or read during our singing time. Again, you may not mimic all of the external actions here, though those would be appropriate, but you may not do that. But in your heart, is there a sensitivity to the Lord? Is there an, a heart for the Lord? Do you expect, when you gather, do you expect to encounter the living God through his word? Hebrews 4, his word is living and active. Second Timothy says his word is God-breathed. It is the breath of God, the spirit of God to us. When you read your Bible tomorrow morning before work or tonight or at your lunch break tomorrow, whenever you read God's word, are you expecting to encounter the living God? Are you expecting that I'm about to meet the God of the universe? Every day, this is revival. I get it. This is renewal. This is, they didn't live this way every day the rest of their lives, okay? It, I understand that life goes up and down. But is there any expectation that ever we would experience this? I'm going to challenge you to pray before next Sunday as you come or pray before you go to your community group this week. Lord, give me a sensitive heart to your word that I could hear from you and respond to you.
God's word is meant to be understood. Did you notice that? The Levites are all out here, and they're explaining everybody. Here's the sense of it. They're helping them make sense of it. That's what it actually means. I want to ask you to pray for those who teach here and those who teach in children's ministry. An equally important calling. What's happening here? What's happening there? Equally important people hearing God's word. I want to ask that you would pray for those who teach, that those who teach would teach with integrity, with truth, with the fear of the Lord. Pray for the people who teach God's word here on Sundays. Uh, Pray for the people teaching your children. Pray for the preachers because only because we, we want the truth to be given the real sense of the scripture truthfully. God brings conviction through his word. Conviction. When was the last time? Maybe today you're experiencing conviction. I pray so. But if not, when was the last time that you experienced conviction from God's word where you felt like, oh, God is right and I'm not? If God's perfect and holy, we should expect that when we come to his word on a regular basis, there's going to be a sense of he's holy and I'm sinful. He's right and I'm wrong. My attitudes are not, my attitudes and actions are not right with God. That's going to happen. So when was the last time that you were convicted by God's word? Are you allowing it to evaluate you? And lastly, when was the last time you experienced joy from God's word, from the gospel in particular? When you heard the gospel and there was just a joy in your heart that, yes, what I've done or what I've failed to do is grievous, but what Jesus has done for me is glorious, and he accepts me and welcomes me and loves me. In spite of my failure, the father has adopted me into his family. I'm his daughter. I'm his son. The Lord is singing over me, Zechariah says. Lord, thank you for grace. When's the last time you, in your heart you really knew joy? See, we can look for joy in a thousand places, but joy is in Christ through his word for us. As they obey, they have joy. Let me read the rest of the chapter and make one brief comment on it, and we're done. Here's what happens. They go their way, and then verse 13, on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths. This is the the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. It happened every year. During the Feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild uh, uh, olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So they go out. Basically, this was a time when you got branches and leaves and made like makeshift uh, tents to, to live in, to camp in for a week. And then during that week, you had celebration, you read God's word, you had all kinds of celebrations for everybody. And the goal was that they would remember 
Israel when they were in the wilderness, that God provided for them in the wilderness. That's why they're out of their homes and they're in these fake tents things because they're remembering what God, that God provides for us. And it's after the harvest, so they're saying, look at how God's provided in the harvest. It's also a memory of God's presence with us. So it's provision and presence that God provided manna uh, for 40 years for his people in the desert and sustained them and was with them by uh, fire and cloud, uh, guiding them and directing them, present with them. So that's the memory that's going on here. I just think they've just worked 52 days camping out, building the wall. The guys have just gone home, and now they're back doing seven days of camping with all the kids with myrtle leaves and twigs. I mean, this is not comfortable. It's not resort living. And it says that when they do it, you could arguably say that's a bit of an inconvenience. But when they do it, it says they were all, there was much rejoicing. There was very great rejoicing. They obey God. They recognize God's provision and God's presence with them. And they, and living under a palm branch, they're happy. There is much rejoicing. They're, they're, at a cele- they're celebrating the Feast of Booze. They're obeying God. And as they do, God's joy is with them. That feast points to Jesus. He is the one that all the feasts point to. Jesus is God's provision for us in his cross and resurrection. Jesus is God's presence with us, Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus fulfills this very Feast of Booths. One of the most dramatic incidences in Jesus' ministry is John 7. In John 7, Jesus is at the Feast of Booths, 400 and, I don't know, maybe 500 by this point. I don't know, 475 years, I can't do the math. 475 years after this, Jesus is in the same city at the Feast of Booths. And at the Feast of Booths on the last day, there was this water ceremony where the high priest would pour water out while everyone's hushed and gathered around. And the pouring of the water represented that God has provided for us in the harvest and the water represents his presence, his spirit, his presence with us. And while everybody is quietly watching the sober moment on the last day when the water is poured, it's at that moment that most scholars believe that Jesus stood up and said these words in John seven thirty seven. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit. So Jesus stands up. This is a radical move. Stands up at the feast of booze and says, everything that's going on here is about me. Come to me. If you want your thirst quenched, Jesus is the reason for the feast of booze. It's when we come to Christ and trust in him and his work for us, that there will be great rejoicing conviction over sin to be sure but Jesus is God's presence with us by the Holy Spirit Jesus is God's provision for us and as we know him through his word we experience his joy may his joy the joy of the Lord be our strength let's pray you've been listening to a message from Grace Church for more information visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.